Good morning, good morning, good morning. You know how sometimes something strikes you and it kind of seizes your attention when you weren't really expecting it. Uh, that happened to me just this morning. And matter of fact, in our time of prayer before the service, we were praying together about how um, we were praying for the church and how we were really wanting that... Um, Whatever it is, whether it's a, a conversation had over coffee, uh, a lyric in a song, uh, a component of our prayer together, a scripture, that something that God would just take something from today's service and really apply it to your heart and minister to you in that way. And surprising, I shouldn't be surprised, but surprisingly, God did that with me right from the start with Andre's call to worship. And I love this statement in Psalm 145 where he's talking about the people of God giving testimony from one generation to another. And I don't know if you caught this, so let me read this again. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. Did you hear that? Like they should pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. And we've done that already even this morning. As we've gathered in this place in his name and we're singing these praises, we are pouring forth the fame of the goodness of the Lord. And his goodness is coming to us in abundance. Are you with me, church? Yes. Amen to that. Well, I'm just delighted to be here. I am really, really happy to be here. And I want to say, I want to testify even more to the goodness of God. Um, yes, was I supposed to do that? The children <laughs> are invited downstairs at this time. Um. I just have to say that physically, I am well on the road to recovery. Uh, as a matter of fact, this past week, I have felt better, stronger, healthier than I have been in probably three months. As I've just gone from one cold to the next to the next, and I just... Um, you know, I've got just the slightest trace of a little sniffle and a little cough still there, but man, I am almost entirely done. So I just want to thank the Lord for that. I want to thank you for your prayers for me. Thank you for praying for my family. We're all doing much, much better. Thank you for uh, receiving uh, Leonard Lee so wonderfully and graciously last week who stepped in the pulpit in my stead. Uh, that was a delight, and it was just uh, so appreciative of your flexibility and, and, again, the way that you received him so well. Uh, and I'm just glad to be here with you. I do have some exciting news to share with you before we get to the scriptures. I have some exciting news to share with you uh, concerning an addition to the church. Because it was relayed to me, and now I am relaying to you that Andrew and Sarah Brown are expecting child number four. Yeah. 
And so there they are. Yes. And so we are just so delighted for them, for, uh, for Gracie and Eliza and Julie as they um, await another brother or sister, uh, the Lord knows. And so anything that you would want to say? Okay. Okay. <laughs> yes, very, very, very happy. Um, and so Sally and I, we have five children, and I want you to know I've assured them that this is not a competition. Uh, and so uh, we're just delighted for them in every way. So happy for the Brown and Nimi families and uh, our church family as well. So God bless you guys. And, of course, we're waiting for uh, uh, Patrick and Michelle Dew also, right? And she is due, I think, any I don't know exactly. When is she due? April. She's due in April. Yes. So we'll just have so much to look forward to. Please take your Bible and uh, meet me in the book of Acts, the New Testament book of Acts. Two weeks ago, we began a new sermon series in the book of Acts. Acts provides an account of the early church, its formation, and its ministry of the gospel, and we considered the key verse in the book. Chapter 1, verse 8, which sets the tone for the entire account. In verse 8, Jesus tells a small band of his early followers these world-changing words. Look at them with me. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so they were to be Christ's witnesses locally, regionally, and nationally, and even globally. And by God's grace, this is exactly what they became. As Acts unfolds, we find that chapters 2 through 7 are about the church's witness in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 are about the church's witness in Judea and Samaria. And chapters 13 through 28 are about how the church's witness began extending to the ends of the known world. But key to all of this, Jesus taught and reminded, key to all of this was the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. It was not to be by their might or machinations. Those who gathered with Jesus that day were told to wait for the Spirit, and they were assured that when the Spirit came, He would equip them and empower them for this great task. Therefore, the book of Acts is about the work of the Spirit of God through the witness of the people of God. The work of the Spirit of God through the witness of the people of God. It is God's work. Ours is to simply give witness to it, or, as we were reminded from Psalm 145 this morning, to, to pour forth the fame of his abundant goodness. 
Jesus had promised them the Holy Spirit. So they knew the Spirit was coming. They knew what they were to do once he came. But they were not to do it until he came. Instead, they were to wait. In other words, they were to wait on God. Now, I know that you know what it's like to wait on the Lord. To wait for God to act on his promises. Certainly, all of us can relate with this on some level. All of us can relate with this on some level. Waiting for God to act on his promises. Yet contrary to what we typically assume, waiting on God doesn't mean doing nothing. As we will discover this morning, these early followers of Jesus did three very important things while waiting for God's promise of the Holy Spirit. They obeyed, they prayed, and they prepared with purpose. They obeyed, they prayed, and they prepared with purpose. And from this we learn a key life lesson. Because obedience is fundamental to our trust in God, prayer and purposeful preparation are critical to the life of faith. I'll say that again. Because obedience is fundamental to our trust in God, prayer and purposeful preparation are critical to the life of faith. I want to read this with you. Acts chapter 1. I'll begin at verse 12 and read through the end of the chapter, verse 26. So Jesus has met with them. He's told them these things. And then he, as, he ascends to heaven. Verse 12. Then they, the disciples... Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the brothers and sisters. Peter stood up among them. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, at this point, Luke inserts a parenthetical statement in verses 18 and 19 that if we don't follow along, we may get confused. But Luke then says, 
Now this man, talking about Judas, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of the field, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. In verse 20, Peter picks up again, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp, Judas, may his camp become desolate, and that there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are very very thankful for the opportunity we have yet again to come together in and around your word because your word is truth your word is life and your word is an expression of your heart What a joy and privilege we have then in these moments we share to really come to know you better. And for that, we need you to open up our hearts to your word, to do the necessary work in our heart, that we might understand who you are better and better align our lives with your purpose for life. Will you come and do that among us this morning? We trust you will through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Not to be overlooked in this passage is the disciples' simple obedience to Jesus. How they waited obediently in response to his instruction. Earlier in verse 4, he had told them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. So Luke, the author of this book, takes the necessary time to tell us that this is exactly what they did. In verse 12, he records them returning to Jerusalem, while in verse 13, he lists them each by name as if to emphasize that these specific disciples 
obeyed Jesus's specific command to wait. Let's be honest. We don't like waiting, do we? In our day of 24-7 news cycles, endless social media outlets, door-to-door delivery services that cater to so many of our wants, as well as Jiffy Lube-type auto garages where we can literally get our oil changed as if in a fast-food drive-thru, It's obvious that we greatly prioritize our time. Our time really matters. And we simply don't want to wait for much of anything. If we're honest, we want we want what we want when we want it. At home. Sally bought an Instapot that she found on sale on Black Friday, and it has revolutionized our nighttime routine. How many of you are familiar with these Instapots? She can take an army's worth of meat directly from the freezer, place it into the pot, and have it cooked perfectly and plated on the table in 30 minutes or less. I'm not kidding. She's running around collecting kids from school, helping them with homework, answering numerous numerous business-related calls, texts, and emails, and yet she can take a roast that is frozen solid. This is a boulder of meat. This roast is frozen solid and have it on the table in a half an hour ready to go. Believe me, we are singing the praises of whoever came up with the Instapot. (laughs) It has changed the way we do midweek dinners. But be that as it may, there is an unintended consequence to our fast-paced lifestyles that I believe really touches on an underlying issue of the human condition. And it's this. We're always looking for shortcuts. Shortcuts may be fine when it comes to driving directions, or food preparation. But because this this quest, this never-ending quest for shortcuts, this never-ending quest to want it what we want, when we want it, sometimes, all too often actually, we take shortcuts in our obedience to God. Which obviously is not conducive to a healthy relationship. But the reason we're always looking for a quicker solution is because we don't like to wait. And in fact, we question whether it's really necessary. You see, in the end, patience is a matter of trust. 
It's trust in the Lord. We, we take shortcuts with God because sometimes we don't trust God. Wasn't that King Saul's problem uh, back when he was tasked to lead and care for God's people? Remember, Saul had so much going for him. He was chosen by God, commissioned by Samuel, confirmed by a great military victory, cheered by an adoring public, and reigned for 40 years over the nation of Israel. Yet in the end, Scripture says he acted foolishly because he did not keep the command of the Lord. The Lord had told him to wait. To wait for Samuel the prophet before engaging the Philistines in battle. And at first, here's the deal, at first Saul did wait. He did. He waited for seven days for Samuel to arrive and tell him the next move. But when Samuel didn't show as Saul expected Saul took matters into his own hands. He disobeyed the Lord, and his place upon the throne of Israel was lost. From that moment on, a kingdom that, according to Samuel, Saul's kingdom would have been established over Israel forever. Because he had failed to wait patiently on the Lord and sought a shortcut instead, Saul missed out on God's blessing and was eventually replaced by David. You know, patience is one of those virtues you learn only by experience. You can't learn patience by reading about it, hearing about it, or watching someone else practice it. You don't learn patience that way. Patience is learned only when placed in situations where you're inclined toward impatience. Oh, it's only through testing where patience is developed. And the thing about impatience, about those moments when impatience gets the best of us, it's that it's not that we don't wait, it's that we, like King Saul, we don't wait long enough. Rather than trusting God to deliver on His promises, uh, we wait only to a point before taking matters into our own hands. And in this way, we disobey the Lord and show that we that our trust, we trust more in our own understanding than in His. So I just don't want us to downplay the significance of how these disciples waited obediently here in this passage. Listen, even when waiting for something exciting as they were, the wait itself can still be very hard, can it? I mean, any child who's ever counted down the days to Christmas can tell you that. And what strikes me about their obedience is that Jesus never told them how long to wait. Or what the coming of the Spirit would entail, what it would look like. They were given very little detail. Instead, he just assured them of God's promise and told them to wait for its fulfillment. So, church, if you're going through a period in your life 
where it seems like you're experiencing a delay of some sort or that you're stuck in one spot with very little movement. Remember that God has appointed a purpose for you that comes to fruition in the waiting, not apart from it. You are perfectly poised, therefore. You are perfectly positioned in a place where your faith in the Lord is being sanctified and strengthened as you trust and obey. And yet waiting doesn't mean doing nothing. I think this is an important truth to grab onto because sometimes we do assume that waiting for the Lord to act means no action on our part. But this isn't the case and or how relationship with God works. Even as we wait on the Lord, there are steps to be taken. For not only did the disciples wait obediently, they also waited prayerfully. You know, we tend to think, I tend to think, I used to tend to think, that Peter's sermon in chapter 2 was the launch of the church. That the church began only after the Holy Spirit descended and Peter preached Christ, but, but I've come to realize it actually began much earlier. It actually began right here in the second half of chapter 1. It began when these believers came together in obedience to Jesus, and while waiting for the Holy Spirit, they started to pray. They were united in prayer, they were constant in prayer, and they were desperate for God to move. Verse 14 says, all these with one accord. Now this is an incredible statement, really. All these with one accord. If we don't pause just to let that sink in, we will miss something so wonderful, something so unique, something so rare that most of us don't even notice its absence anymore. All the people present in that place at that time gathered to pray. Not some, not most. They all came together to grab hold of the throne of God with one accord. It wasn't just that they were in the same room. You see, they were of the same mind. They were united in prayer. And they didn't just pray in passing for 10 minutes here and there. No, it says they were constant in prayer or devoting themselves to prayer. For them, you see, the community of believers and praying together was the food that filled their hungry souls as they waited for God to move. Corporate prayer is essential to a healthy church. What we see in Acts and in the New Testament epistles is local congregations praying for and with one another and for the world at large. Prayer in the church is, it isn't just about you and God. It's about us and God. You and me and us together coming together to seek the Lord for the same things, working side by side for the same cause, namely the cause of Christ as it's worked out in our own individual lives and in our surrounding world. 
their devotion to prayer, I'm convinced, was fueled by their own desperations. You see, they had no other options but to pray. They were desperate for God to move, desperate for the Holy Spirit. Jesus had called them to something so much bigger than they ever imagined so far beyond their own abilities. I've described it before like this. When Jesus met with them just prior to his ascension and as recorded in the opening section of chapter 1, he, he basically said, guys, here's the plan. I'm going back to heaven and you're going to stay to continue what I've begun here on earth. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and He will be with you in powerful ways. You're going to tell people about me and the salvation I bring to lost souls. You'll tell them about their sins and how their sins separate them from God and the eternal consequences of that separation. Then you'll speak about my sacrificial substitutionary death on their behalf. You'll tell them about my resurrection from the dead and about the goodness and grace of God who forgives sins and grants life and welcomes to himself every sinner who repents and trusts me and follows me. That's the plan. Oh, and by the way, you're going to do this in Jerusalem among those who hate you, just as they hated me. And you'll do this in Judea and Samaria among those whom you hate. And you'll do this even in places you don't yet know of to the very ends of the earth. Okay? Everybody lean in close. You got it? That's the plan. And then he's gone. He ascends to heaven. He's out gone from their sight. Now, what do you think they were thinking? Maybe, I'm sure, maybe on some level there was this sense of exhilaration, like, oh my goodness, which was quickly met by absolute desperation, like, oh my goodness. So that by the time they get to Jerusalem, they realize, we can't do this. Not by ourselves. If we're to follow Jesus in this way, we must grab hold of God's promises and never let go. They took hold of the promise of the Holy Spirit. They took hold of the promise that they would be Christ's disciples, that He would make it so. 
They took hold of the promise that Jesus is coming again and the promises of God were enough to unite them in constant prayer, devoted together and desperate for God to move. So I ask you, what effect does prayer have on the person who waits? Well, it gives voice to the desperation within our own hearts. Desperation brings out the best in us sometimes because those moments when we realize just how little control we actually have over the affairs of life are opportune times that propel us to call personally on the one who is in complete control. Prayer is essential at all times, of course, but perhaps especially when in seasons of waiting, because to wait in prayer is to share the yearnings of our hearts while learning the heart of the Lord. It's to cast our cares on Him, believing that He so faithfully and lovingly and wonderfully cares for us. It's to trust in the promises of His Word, knowing that all of God's promises find their ultimate amen in Jesus. Now, I could not possibly know all you're praying for these days. Every longing of your heart, but I know that God knows. And I know that talking with God about those longings has a way of bringing clarity to what may be sometimes a cloudy situation, a way of realigning your soul, and a way of calming your fears and worries. I know that talking with God about these things and praying together with trusted members of the church is something that any one of us can do at any time. So, pray. Even in your desperation, especially in your desperation, pray and wait on the Lord. About 120 men and women gathered in that upper room in Jerusalem to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And while they waited, they prayed together. And secondly, they made necessary preparations. They prepared for what was coming next, specifically by choosing a 12th apostle to take the place of Judas Iscariot, who had betrayed Jesus as the scriptures foretold. In other words, I want us to see this. They, they, they waited purposefully. They obeyed, they prayed, they prepared with purpose. Peter stood and announced to the group in verse 16 that the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, here Peter, uh, notice here how Peter saw the connection between what was happening in their lives at the time and what the Spirit of God had said through David hundreds of years earlier. This is critical. Peter quotes David in verse 20. He quotes from Psalm 69 and again from Psalm 109. G. Campbell Morgan comments on this scene, how they were interpreting the present 
by the scriptures of the past. I like that. They were interpreting the present by the scriptures of the past. One of the best things to do when in a period of waiting for what God will reveal is learning and remembering what he has already revealed. You know, this is another reason why the Bible is so valuable and so trustworthy. Think about what Peter says here. He's talking about how David's words, written centuries prior, were inspired by God concerning events that would take place a thousand years later. David, when he was writing those words, David obviously could never have known the full extent of what he was writing. But God did. And Peter now saw the connection. You know, I was talking with Frank earlier this morning. Frank made this great observation. Put yourself in Peter's shoes because this is the Peter who was when Judas came to betray Jesus and they came to arrest him. This was the Peter who pulled his sword and started lopping off ears. And then ultimately denied the Lord. And now here he is, about six weeks later. And he goes, guys, you see the connection? This verse, these verses in Psalm 69 and 109, they're speaking to our lives right now. How many times have you read something in your Bible that didn't strike you in the moment, but later made complete sense once your understanding had grown and your circumstance warranted. You know what I'm talking about? So I thought of this illustration. You guys remember the movie, The Karate Kid? I'm talking about the original Karate Kid. I'm talking about the, the Ralph Macchio, Mr. Miyagi Karate Kid. Remember how Mr. Miyagi, so, so Daniel, the main character, Daniel comes to Mr. Miyagi, this martial arts guru, and he asks him to teach him karate, teach him the arts. And Mr. Miyagi agrees. He likes this kid. So they come over for their first training session, Daniel does, comes over to first training session. You remember how Mr. Miyagi had Daniel wax all the cars and paint the fence. And how Daniel became frustrated because it seemed to him like he was just doing chores when what he really wanted was to learn karate. But later, right, later the wax on wax off and paint the fence 
they became it made, they, they, those, those movements made perfect sense because Daniel then saw how they were necessary skills in self-defense. Sometimes, hear this people, sometimes learning the Bible is like that. You read it, but you don't always see the overarching point. You don't. And because we don't, we sometimes give up. We may not even fully understand what we're reading until more pieces fall into place and the bigger picture of what God is doing comes into focus. But if you don't read and learn your Bible now, don't give up. Because if you don't read and learn your Bible now, there'll be nothing to draw on later. Like the Karate Kid, sometimes we need to just wax on and off even when it doesn't make sense because it will make perfect sense at some point down the road. That's essentially what Peter and the others in that upper room were experiencing for the first time they saw how the scriptures of Psalm 69 and 109 applied directly to them. Specifically to the fall of Judas and the need for his replacement. And then we have these these words, verses 18 and 19, that are parenthetical statements, I think, uh, inserted by Luke, presumably for Theophilus, so that Theophilus, who was the recipient of this letter, remember, so that the Theophilus would know what became of Judas. Now, suffice it to say, we know this, Judas didn't end well. We know that after betraying Jesus, Judas regretted what he'd done and basically tried to undo it by returning to the Pharisees with whom he made the deal and giving them back their money. Of course, they weren't interested in undoing the deal. Instead, they took the money Judas returned, and they bought a field which became known as the field of blood. Judas hanged himself in that field, and apparently either his body swelled to the point of bursting, or the rope snapped and his internal organs gushed out when he hit the ground. Either way, obviously the picture of Judas is a sad one. Now hear this, people, because this goes to show just how devastated and given to disgrace is the person who turns away from Jesus to go his own way instead. It doesn't end well. So the 11 11 remaining apostles took necessary steps to replace Judas as the scriptures foretold, and the rest of the chapter 
tells about uh, uh, the qualifications for apostleship. Right, the apostle needed to be with Jesus throughout his ministry and also a witness to his resurrection. Talks about the two men put forth for apostleship. Mentions a prayer offered to know which apostle the Lord has chosen. And then it records the final selection of Matthias, who became the twelfth apostle. All this to say that their trust was in the Lord, and while they waited, they prepared. They prepared for what was coming next, and we do well to follow their example. Listen, I was thinking this week about all of the preparations that go into a Sunday service like this one. The teams of people who prepare for their respective tasks. Adult discipleship teachers, uh, children's teachers, nursery workers, those who serve in hospitality, uh, uh, either baking or buying um, refreshments and coffee, greeters and ushers, music team members, AV technicians, those who help with the announcements, those who help with the printing of the bulletin, the selection of songs, the reading of scripture, the crafting of a sermon, those who pray for the service, and then those who avail themselves to pray for others after the service, collectively, literally, dozens of hours go into each church service each week as each person does his or her part. And we do this knowing, we do this knowing that unless the Holy Spirit does what only he can do in our midst and in our lives, then none of it really is of any enduring eternal quality. So why do we give so much, so regularly, to something so ultimately dependent on God? Why do we do that? Why do we give so much, so regularly, to something so ultimately dependent on God? Because we know that God is on the move and we trust Him to accomplish that to which He has called us. Like the farmer who waits for the crop to come in, we must prepare for it while waiting in hope. I want to close with that final thought because I think this entire scene shows how they waited with hope. They waited with hope. <laughs> oh my goodness, they waited with hope. They truly believed that something better was coming. That whatever God was doing was good. That it was meant for their good and for the good of the world around them. You see, the stage was set for the coming of the Spirit while the followers of Jesus waited in hope.
obediently, prayerfully, purposefully. Let's not underestimate the power of hope when waiting on the Lord. Hope is help to those who wait. So in the words of Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Father, encourage our hearts this morning. We need that. Make us strong. Make us strong in our, in our trust, in our faith. Strong in our seasons of waiting. Help us to be obedient. Help us to be prayerful. Help us to be purposeful in what we do, knowing that in the end, all our lives and every aspect of our lives is in your good hands. Make us people of great hope for our good and for the glory of your great name. Amen.